Welcome to Frontline Church, South Oklahoma City's podcast page, where each week we will upload a new sermon uh, from our current sermon series that we're in. If you have uh, any questions, concerns, uh, or have a prayer request or need, you can email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com or visit our website, south.frontlinechurch.com. Thanks. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 11, 2-16. The word of God speaks to us. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her, as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image of God and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for her covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is God's word to us. What could possibly be confusing about that? This is going to be great. Some of you are like, man, I thought the worst thing I'd hear coming to church for the first time is a sermon on money. And here we are talking about head covering. So, hey, welcome. Good morning. Uh, if we've not had the chance to meet yet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. And uh, it's an honor to open the word of God with you today. Uh, hey, I did not draw the short straw today. If you're curious, uh, I actually assigned myself this text back when we chose to preach our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, I knew that this was coming. I assigned myself to this passage uh, because partly as your pastor, man, I want, as one of your pastors rather, I want you to see the beauty of this. I want you to see the power of this. I want you to see how significant and important this text is and actually relevant for your life and for my life today. And uh, if you're curious, like we don't just choose the really hard, bizarre text. We're like, hey, this would be really fun to preach on. Um, we are a Bible-honoring church, and what we want to do is take books of the Bible and slowly work our way through these books because there's stuff in here that if I were cherry-picking text, I would avoid, like this one. And yet, the reality is there's something that God wants to offer his people through his word. His word is not just true, it's good. And it's something that should shape us and help us know how to live. And so uh, there are some passages of the Bible that are really, really hard to understand. There are other passages in the Bible that are really hard to receive and digest. And this text happens to be both. 
It's one of the most complicated texts in the New Testament. Scholars agree, if not the most, it is one of the most complicated passages in all of the New Testament. And once you understand it, it's hard to receive. It's hard to digest. It's hard to metabolize into your life as a follower of Jesus. And so with that in mind, I want to just quickly do two things before we jump in. The first is I want to recommend some resources on this passage. Uh, I've spent over 60 hours studying this text, and that's not me saying like a braggadocious thing, because that'd be like the lamest brag in the history of brags. Like I'm going to get no friends at no party by saying that about, I've spent 60 hours studying this text. But it's true, and the reason I want you to know that is because I've read extensively across the board on all different theological spectrums. You've got uh, people that are more Reformed or people that are more Arminian, people that are charismatic, people that are cessationist, complementarian and egalitarian, uh, more progressive-leaning and more conservative-leaning. I've read all of those different resources out there, and what's been shocking to me is how many of them actually agree on almost everything in this text. There's a shared history that we have as Christians in this passage that we can actually resonate with and celebrate. And out of all the resources, if, you, if you've got questions, you can email me. Uh, we can give you a big list of things. But there are two that I want to specifically recommend if you want to go deeper for the two of you that are ultra nerdy like me and actually care. So here's, uh, this is, both of these books are written by a historian and a New Testament scholar, Bruce Winter. Uh, Bruce Winter is fascinating. He is literally one of the world's leading experts on uh, cultural issues and on Christian first century context and Greco-Roman society. So if you want to go deeper, if you want to learn more, if you're like, what is he reading? And how? This is a great set of resources. This guy spent literally three decades, over 30 years, studying Corinth as a culture, as a Roman city, and studying the various movements that was happening in the Greco-Roman world at the time. And he's bringing with that this brilliant New Testament knowledge to bear. These are great resources that I would recommend. The first one, after Paul left Corinth, and the second one, Roman wives, Roman widows. Uh, Really helpful if you want to go deeper. The second thing that I want to do is I want to pray for us, because this is not just an exercise in our heads this morning. This is an exercise in our heart. This is a danger that you and I face every Sunday when we gather together, and here's the danger. Will we sit in judgment over the Word of God to decide for ourselves what we think is true and relevant for our lives, Or will we allow the word of God to sit in judgment over us and tell us what is true and tell us what is relevant for our lives? We've got to make that decision. And if we're going to actually sit in submission to the word of God, we need some humility today and we need some grace and we need some help from the Holy Spirit. Amen? Okay, so I'm going to pray for you. You pray for me and we'll get after it. Father, thank you for the beauty of this passage and for the beauty of your word. And today, God, thank you that we don't have to be shy or embarrassed. There's nothing about you that's shameful, and there's nothing about you or your heart for your church that we need to hide from or be embarrassed about. We receive all of who you are and all of your heart for your church. Today, this passage, I pray that you would bring hope and life and clarity. Help us to not just see the truth of it, but help us to see the beauty of it and to love it, and to embrace it. And for my friends that are far from you today, I pray that you would draw them in. Show them how relevant your word is for our lives today. Show them how different and attractive and beautiful it is. We pray for grace today. I pray for humility for my friends and for myself. And if there's anything about what I'm gonna say that's unhelpful or not in line with your word and heart, 
let it be quickly forgotten. Guard my tongue and allow what's said today to honor you and make much of you. Pray these things in your name, amen. One of the greatest mistakes that many Christians make when they read the Bible, especially in the West, is what I'll call the timeless versus cultural fallacy. The timeless versus cultural fallacy. We do this all the time, and maybe you don't recognize it, but here's how this fallacy, this this illogical approach works. It basically views the Bible as divided up neatly into two categories. You've got the timeless stuff, and then you've got the cultural stuff. The timeless stuff is the stuff that's Of course, for all people in all places and all times, things like love your neighbor as yourself, forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you, confess your sins before God and one another. Like these are texts that we could say, it doesn't matter if you live in this part of the world or at this time in history, this is just the heart of God. It's timeless. We all should receive these timeless truths. Then you've got cultural stuff. And the cultural stuff is the stuff that you could look at and go, well, that's clearly written to a particular culture. It's clearly a cultural aspect. So therefore, I don't have to obey it. It's irrelevant for my life altogether today. And when it comes to this passage, 1 Corinthians 11, a handful of Christians throughout church history have located this in the timeless side of things. This is the timeless stuff. So if you've ever been in certain denominations or church backgrounds where you've seen women that are wearing head coverings when they go to church, it's because they've located this text in the timeless side. They're trying to honor the word of God. They're trying to say, hey, this is in the scriptures, and so therefore it applies to me. I need to obey it, right? Full stop. The majority of us, however, don't make that decision. Most of us look at a text like this and we just assume, well, this is cultural, so therefore I don't have to believe this, I don't have to really obey this, this doesn't apply to my life whatsoever. Now here's the problem with that approach, is that the entire Bible is both timeless and cultural at the same time. And you cannot separate those two out. You cannot neatly divide those two. And in fact, who would even have the authority to decide what aspects of Scripture are in fact timeless and what aspects of Scripture are in fact cultural? Here's the right approach, the better approach, is to actually realize that all of Scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching and for rebuking us and correcting us and training us in a life of godliness. All of the Bible is timeless, authoritative, true, beautiful, Word of God. to your life and my life to be obeyed today. And all of the Bible is cultural. You'll not find one single word in scripture that wasn't written in a particular language to a particular people group with a particular cultural background at a particular time and place and history with very specific things happening around it. All of the Bible is both timeless and cultural. So what do we do with a text like this that clearly does apply to us because it's in the Bible? It's for us. It's to us. It's something that should instruct us. How do we do that when it comes to a text like this? Well, a few things that we have to do. When it comes to passages like 1 Corinthians 11, we have to do the hard work of asking, what did this text mean to its original audience at the time? It cannot mean to me what it never meant to them. I'll say that again because that's one of the most important things that you can get when it comes to understanding scripture. It cannot mean to us what it never meant to them. So what did it mean to them? What did it mean to its original audience? In addition to that, what was happening in Corinth culturally at the time that led the Apostle Paul to say the things and write the things that he said and wrote to the Corinthian church? What's the heart of the text? What would they have received from it? And then once we do all of that hard 
work, then we can learn to apply it to our lives today. Kathy Keller wrote an amazing book called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. If, if you don't own this book, it's short, it's brief, it's cheap. On Amazon, get it. It's very good. She says, we must find a way to obey faithfully whatever we discover to be God's revealed will, even if our own cultural situation has changed since it was first revealed. So let me give you a quick example of this. Uh, Greet each other with a holy kiss. Now, have you noticed at Frontline South that we've not trained our hospitality teams to greet you with a kiss on the lips when you walk in the doors? You're welcome for that, all right? Now, some of you are like, well, so do you not obey that text? No, we actually do obey that text. But culturally at the time, in Roman culture and Roman practice, to greet one another with a holy kiss was something that one person would do to an equal you would never do it to someone that you viewed culturally as not equal to you. So if you were wealthy, then you would greet another wealthy person with a kiss. If you were poor, you would greet another poor person with a kiss, but you were not allowed to greet a wealthy person and they were not allowed to greet you. It was just taboo. It went against culture at the time. You would not do it. It was divided up based on your ethnicity, whether you're a man or a woman, your background, your wealth, your status, all of it. And so when Paul is saying, greet each other with a holy kiss, he's using Roman symbolism and saying, hey, this is something that you need to actually treat all people as equals because in Christ, we are all equals. That the dividing walls of hostility between men and women and Jews and Gentiles and and wealthy and the poor, all of that's been obliterated and we're one in Christ. We're friends and family of God. Greet each other with a holy kiss. So friends, we just did this a few minutes ago and you didn't even realize it. When we turned to one another and we hugged each other or we high-fived or we gave a handshake or whatever it was that we did, that was greeting one another as equals in Christ. Do you see how we have to do the work of what did it mean to them and then how do we apply it for ourselves today? And so once we understand what hair length and head coverings meant in Roman culture in the first century at the time, then we can figure out how that applies to our lives today. And here's what you're going to find. Here's what you're going to find. This passage that at first reading feels a million miles away from us is actually shockingly relevant to your life and my life today. That actually, in a culture that is constantly looking more and more like the world and Christian culture looking less and less like the ways of Jesus, in a culture where we're confused about the nature of gender, where we can't even answer basic questions like what is a woman or what is a man, in a culture like ours that is Uh, constantly wanting to signal to other people how significant and superior and special and important we are through social media and other means, and a culture that is constantly vying for our rights and doing what I want to do and loving myself as opposed to loving you and laying my rights down, this passage is going to blow your minds with how relevant it is for your life and my life. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Just stay with me till the end. This is a little bit of a longer sermon. I apologize for that. But it has to be if we're going to understand what's happening here. Stay with me till the end. I think on one level, you're going to be encouraged by where we land on head coverings. Like just to let the cat out of the bag, we're not going to be offering standard issue doilies to all the ladies on your way out the door. You know, take an Easter invite card and a doily for your head. We're not doing that today. We're not going to set up a barber shop in the back and shave Will Gaines' hair to fit this text. We're not doing that today. Right? So I think you're going to be encouraged by where we land on the issue of head coverings. But once you understand what Paul is saying, I think you're also going to be challenged. I think it's also going to be tough. And so with that in mind, let's jump in. Verse 2. You ready? Yeah. Yeah. 
One person, two people. Okay, great. We're doing it. I've got the face mic, so we're doing it. All right, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. There's so much here that I want to dig into, but here's what's so fascinating. Chapter 11, verse 2 starts a new transition into this letter. There are five major sections in 1 Corinthians. This kicks off the the fourth of the five sections. Everything from chapter 11, verse 2, all the way through chapter 14 is dealing with a very specific set of issues all around the corporate gathered worship of the people of God. What you and I are doing right now, Paul is now dealing with that. He'd left the whole deal about food sacrifice to idols. 11 verse 2 is a new transition. And I love it because he starts out with a bit of loving irony. I think Paul is being honest when he says, hey, I want to commend you because you remember me and you are working hard to keep these traditions. And yet, He's going to go on in this entire chapter to basically rebuke them and tell them how off they are on all the ways that they're carrying out these traditions. It's sort of like a parent of a toddler that wakes up and you go out of your your, uh, bedroom and you see that your toddler tried to make their own breakfast that day. Has that ever happened to you? Or they tried to dress themselves. There's a part of you as a parent that you're like, I want to commend you. And also our house is a train wreck. I can't believe you did that to the kitchen, you know? That's sort of what Paul is doing here. I want to commend you, but you're missing it on a few things. And that corrective statement comes in verse three. Look at it with me. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now we'll get into that verse a little bit later. But notice this brilliant play on words that Paul is doing with head, hair, and head coverings. Look at verse four. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, Christ. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, meaning husband. Since it is the same as as if her head were shaven, For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Three things that I want you to see. Here's the first one, hair and head coverings, hair and head coverings. Now, what we can learn about hair length and head coverings comes from three places. The first, and maybe the most important, really the most important, is what Paul has to say here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We can learn what is being said here from this chapter. In addition to that, the second place we can learn about hair and head coverings is from Roman cultural practices around hair and dress and head coverings in the first century. And the third thing that we can learn here comes from just exploring this letter as a whole and realizing that the Corinthian church was more often than not being swept up into the ways of their city rather than the ways of the kingdom of God. That they were more often being formed by what was happening in their secular world at the time and not by the authoritative word of God on a host of issues. And this issue is just like that. So let's start by talking about women and hair length and head coverings. Now in our culture, hair length for women means nothing. Whether you have short hair today or long hair today, you didn't make the decision to have the style of hair that you had probably for theological reasons. My assumption is you made the decision that you made for cultural stylistic preferences. 
But that's not the way that Roman culture worked in the first century. And by the way, I'm not saying Roman Christian culture. I'm saying Roman culture in the first century treated hair length very, very differently and dress very, very differently than we do. Long hair for women was seen as a sign of feminine beauty and glory. And Paul alludes to that in verse 15. In fact, women in Rome in the first century did not have short hair. You just wouldn't. It was not culturally acceptable. You wore long hair and you wore it styled in a host of different ways. That was seen as beauty and feminine glory in Roman society in the first century. In addition to that, women in the first century inside of Roman colonies If they wore their hair down, it's because they weren't married. And to wear your hair down was seen as a sexually promiscuous way to wear your hair or a a very like sexually attractive way to wear your hair, which again, in our culture is not the same. And what we found in studying first century documents is that it was actually prostitutes in pagan temples and female mistresses that would intentionally wear their hair down and dress in very provocative ways to look different than a married, modest woman at the time. In addition to that, head coverings in our culture don't mean anything. When someone gets married, though, in our society, we put on a wedding ring to symbolize, hey, I've been married. I got married. I belong to my husband or my husband or I belong to my wife. Um, in, In the first century, you did not wear a wedding ring to symbolize that you were married. You would actually wear what was called either a veil or a head covering, not covering your face, but like a veil that you would wear over your head, a head covering that would cover your long hair. That was a way that Roman women in the first century symbolized that they were married to a husband. And in addition to that, wearing a head covering for married women was seen as modest. And that was a value. That was a virtue in Roman culture. Even among non-Christian Romans at the time, it was seen as a value and a virtue to be a modest married woman. And so here's what's really crazy. In Bruce Winter's helpful paper, You Were What You Wore in Roman Law, listen to what he says about this. He says, the dress of the first century married woman consisted of a considerable amount of fabric falling into folds from the shoulder. This was made from a non-transparent material. A mantle was wrapped around it, part of which was draped at the top of the head, as it had been for the first time on her wedding day. This was the marriage veil, or head covering, that she subsequently wore always in public as a sign to others of her marital status. Modest dress was the hallmark of the respectable matron. So if you're married and you're a Roman woman in the first century, you could not wear head covering in your house, but the second, time, the second you left your house, you would, they actually had laws in the first century about this. You would wear your head covering out in the marketplaces or out in public. It was the way that you signified to the world that you were modest, that you were married, and that you were sexually faithful to your husbands. Let's talk about men for a minute and their hair length and head coverings. Now, here's the thing about men in the first century. Roman men never wore their hair long, right? Again, it was not a stylistic preference. They just didn't wear their hair long. Women wore their hair long. Men chose not to. It was something that they actually viewed as shameful for a man to wear longer hair. And according to literally every single scholar that I read across all theological spectrums, long hair for men functioned as both a denial of their masculinity 
and as a symbol of homosexual practice. It was a way that you signaled something about your sexual orientation in the first century to wear your headlong. In fact, the only statues that they have found of, of Roman men in Corinth, or men in Corinth rather, with long hair, were people from other tribes, other places that had been attacked and brought as captives. And it was a way to mock them, to say, look at these men, they're not really men. We devoured them, we defeated them, they're now our captives. So if you're a man in Rome, like it, love it, or hate it, doesn't matter. Men in Rome didn't wear their hair long. They wore short hair. In addition to that, Roman men never wore head coverings except on one occasion, one occasion for a subset of the population when highly wealthy, powerful Roman men who were kind of at the top of the class in Roman society, when they would go into a pagan temple to make sacrifices to pagan deities and to perform liturgical practices, if you were at the top of the class in Rome, if you were superior and important and wealthy and had a lot of power, you would cover your head as a symbol of your power, as a symbol of your authority, as a symbol of your significance. So men didn't traditionally cover their heads ever unless you were really wealthy and really powerful. It was the way that you signaled to others your status in the society and how important you were. Now, do you notice what's happening here? Paul is addressing two issues. This is not just an issue where he's correcting men, or I'm sorry, women, about their head coverings. He's actually addressing two issues because the first one is that men in Corinth are gathering on Sundays and they're putting on a head covering and women in Corinth are intentionally taking off their head covering. Two very different problems and Paul's gonna have none of it. Why? Why is it a big deal that men are putting on a head covering and women are taking off their head covering? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me give you more Roman culture because I know you can't get enough of it, right? Here's a little bit more of the backstory here. At the moment that Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians, there's a new progressive women's movement that's sweeping through the Roman Empire at the exact same time. You can read about this in those historical books that I just mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. But essentially, Rome had a double standard with married men and with married women And the Roman women were getting sick of the double standard. Here's what I mean. Roman men who were married were not only allowed to have adulterous affairs, were not only allowed to not be sexually faithful with their wives, but they were actually encouraged and celebrated to not be Uh, to, to not be faithful to their spouses. It was not uncommon if you were a Roman man to leave your wife and your kids at home and go to dinner parties at pagan temples or in the city and have a mistress on your arm. The mistress would walk into the room without a head covering. She'd walk into the room wearing immodest clothing intentionally. She would serve that man during the dinner party. And then after the dinner party, she would do sexual favors for the man. It was accepted. It was allowed. It was encouraged. It was seen as your Roman right as a man. It's pretty jacked up. Women who are married in Rome at the time, however, lived by a very different standard. If you were a woman in Rome, and there are laws, there are two laws that, that Augustus put in place about this. If you were a woman and you were married in Rome, you were not allowed to have an affair on your husband. And if you were found out, if you had an affair, if you were sexually unfaithful with your husband, then they would drag you before the city and they would shave your head or crop your hair short as a sign of humiliation and shaming you for being unfaithful to your husband. Do you see the double standard here? Now, let me just pause and say, Paul's already dealt with this double standard. Back in chapter seven, Paul told the men, he said, husbands, your body does not belong to you. 
It belongs to your wife, and you have to be faithful to her. You have to serve her needs, not your own needs. So Paul's already addressed the men on this issue, but what was happening in the culture in Rome at the time was the married ladies were saying, hey, enough is enough. We're sick of the double standard. Our husbands are running off with these mistresses that have their hair down and they're dressing immodestly, and our husbands want those ladies. You know what we're going to do? We're going to take off our head coverings. We're going to wear immodest dress as well. Enough is enough. Now it's our turn to have some fun as well. We're going to get to be sexually promiscuous and do whatever we want. Who cares what they think? This is sort of like what was happening in the 60s with the bra burning movement, only it's in Rome about head coverings. Again, Bruce Winter, historian and scholar, says this. In the late Republican period and in the early empire, another type of married woman began to emerge, designated by some ancient historians as the, quote, new woman. She differed from the modest wife. Some of the new married women began to wear provocative clothing similar to that of the mistress, the high-class prostitute who entertained at dinner parties. Others felt the social pressure of their peers to adopt this latest trend in dress. Friends, do you see what is happening in Corinth with Christians at the time? Men walking in, putting their head covering on, symbolizing and signaling, look how important I am, look how powerful I am. Women, taking their head covering off and identifying with this progressive new movement in their city. I can be sexually unfaithful to my husband. Who needs that guy? So with fresh eyes, now that things hopefully are a little bit more clear, look at this text again, and it'll all start to make more sense. Verse four, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head which is Christ. He's saying, if you walk in and you put your head covering on as a man, trying to show everybody that because of your status, your wealth, your power in Roman society, that you actually have importance, you're dishonoring Jesus as your head. And, or but rather, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, husband, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Paul's saying, you're acting like these mistresses, these prostitutes. Well, if you're going to do that, why not just shave off your head? You're, you're sending a signal to the city that is really shameful, both on you and on your husband and on the church of Jesus. Do you see what Paul is saying here? Again, Bruce Winter has a helpful summary. He says, if men draw the veil over their head as the elite had traditionally done when leading pagan cultic activities as part of their liturgical responsibilities, then they were deliberately drawing attention to their social status. It was a strong signal to other members of the congregation of their social prestige. Certain wives were also making a statement about themselves by deliberately removing the marriage veil when praying and prophesying. Paul accuses them uh, Paul accuses them of their married. Wow, Paul accuses them of conduct like that of the new elite Roman women, for they were abandoning the definable sign of their married state. If men made a statement by covering their heads as elite liturgical performers, why should not wives likewise make a similar statement with their head coverings? Two different problems. Everyone's wanting to be seen and draw attention to themselves and show that I don't need you and I can do whatever I want. Paul's having none of it. So friends, here's what's really crazy. Men in the church were standing up and saying, in the middle of prayer and prophecy, on a gathered Sunday, they were saying, look how important I am. I'm more superior than other men here, and I'm more superior than all the women here, is what they were saying. 
And women were standing up and saying, I don't need my husband. I can do what I want. I can be disconnected from him. I can be sexually unfaithful. I can do what I want. I don't need to submit to him. I can live as I please. And all of this is actually revealing deeper problems. So that's a problem. But the problem behind the problem was that the ways of the city around gender and sexuality and marriage had made their way into the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul wants to deal with gender dignity, gender differences, and gender interdependence. That's the heart of what he wants to talk about. So with that in mind, here's the second thing I want you to see. It's not just hair and head coverings, but gender dignity and differences. Now, when I use the term gender, I'm using it in the traditional historic sense to mean a person's biological sex at birth. That's how I'm using the word when I say gender. And for all of its interpretive challenges, and there's a lot of them in this chapter, one of the things that becomes crystal clear is that the Apostle Paul is actually expecting something unique and different from men as opposed to women, but to the blessing and benefit of women, to the complementarity of women. And he's expecting something unique and different from women as opposed to men, but to the blessing and benefit and complementarity of the men. Rome's progressive views on gender and sexuality had made their way fully into the heart of these Christians in Corinth, and Paul wants to lovingly confront it. Now, here's what's fascinating. What's really interesting to me about this text is that Paul is dealing with cultural norms around hair length and head coverings and ways that men dressed and ways that women dressed and ways that men functioned and ways that women functioned, and he's not saying it's all bad or wrong. In fact, in some ways, he's upholding some of Roman cultural rules around modesty and some of Rome's values at the time. He's, He's not disagreeing with them or disputing them. He's holding them up as important, but he doesn't root his ultimate argument in Roman culture or society. In fact, what he does is fascinating. He, he anchors his entire argument behind everything he's saying in two things, the nature of God himself in the Trinity and the nature of our created order before the fall entered the world, before sin entered the world. So with that in mind, let's look at Paul's argument here. Look at verse three again. He says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a life is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, before you kind of have a panic attack real quick and freak out a little bit, I want you to recognize something here, that Paul is not arguing for a chain of command. He's not saying that first you've got God, then you've got Christ, then you've got men, and then you've got women. That's not at all in Paul's analogy. In fact, if you look at the order of these pairs, the the very order of the pairs doesn't lead to a hierarchy. He's just describing distinct but overlapping pairs. So he first says Christ as the head of humanity. Then he says husband as the head of his wife. And then he says God the Father as the head of God the Son. Now, if you're curious about where scholars disagree, there are two places, and I'll get to the second one in just a minute, but here's one of the places where theologians and scholars disagree. It's about the word head in Greek. It's kephale, and the argument is about is this authority or is this source, like the source of a fountain or something like that. And some scholars say source, some say head. I would make the case that it's clear in almost every instance that Paul uses kephale in the New Testament that he's describing authority, but often source as well. 
But here's the way to think of it. Here's what Paul is not saying. This is not authority to be the boss. This is not authority to make demands on other people. If anything, it's the authority to serve and to sacrificially lay your life down. But here's the way to think of it. This is less like command and control in a Western organization and more like an Eastern family unit where the actions of the family unit reflect on the head of the family, good or bad, that you can either bring shame or honor to the head of the household in Eastern family context based on your behavior. And that's what Paul is getting at here, that the way that men and women function brings either glory or shame on God. The ways that women function to men brings either glory or shame on their husbands. The way, do you see what he's doing here? This is fascinating, and his argument is rooted in God's nature within the Trinity. So just hang with me. Think about this. The Father and the Son are not interchangeable. The distinctions between the Father and the Son are not fluid. They're not on a spectrum. The Father can't one day just decide to be the Son, and the Son can't just one day decide to be the Father. In addition to that, the Father and the Son are co-equal in dignity and value and worth. They're God. God the Father is fully God, every bit. God the Son, fully God every bit. And yet, friends, even though the Father and the Son are both equal, they both play very different roles within the Trinity. The Father, as the head of Christ, plays the role of the one who gives, the one who sends, the one who reveals things to the Son. The, the, the Son, and I would argue beginning in his incarnation, all the way through his earthly life and ministry, even up until now, right now, as Jesus is seated in heaven, that the Son has made the decision to submit to the will of his Father. In fact, Jesus is said in the New Testament, he'll say, I don't know anything unless the Father reveals it to me. I don't do anything unless the Father reveals it to me. This is what I do. So here is the Son who is fully equal with God and yet different than God, and he doesn't diminish his difference, and, and, and his Godhood is not diminished by his submission to the Father, but he still submits anyway, and no one would look at that and say Jesus is less important or less God because he submits to the Father. Now, what does that mean? for our relationship as men and women, specifically in the context of marriage. Well, friends, let's just start with the basics. Men and women are not interchangeable. Our biological sex and our gender are not fluid, but they are fearfully and wonderfully assigned to us. We are not the same. We are distinct from one another in glorious and complementary fashion. And just as Jesus submitted to the will of his Father, and that wasn't an attack or a diminishment on his character, wives, Christian wives, are called to submit to their husbands. Not because he's great and awesome and amazing, but because it's a way that you show your heart for God. It's a way that you actually embody what the church is doing with Jesus and husbands, you are called to love and sacrificially lead and lay down your wife for your lay down your life for your bride. This is what this is the beauty of what he's saying here is that this relationship that the father and the son has as the father is the head of Christ and Christ responds joyfully to the, the will of his father, that that then cascades down into even our relationships in the context of 
marriage. And friends, within Christianity and within the church, I just want to say this, and this is basic, and it shouldn't even have to be said, but it has to be said. We should not be taking our cues and the way that we think and the things that we feel from what our culture is saying. We should be taking our cues from the heart of God and his word. And we've got to be people that are not grabbing for our rights and self-expression at all costs and loving ourselves more than everybody else. We are actually called to consider the other as more important than ourselves. And that's what Paul is pressing on with the Corinthian culture, is that they looked more like their city and less like the world. And he wants to correct it. Michael Bird, the scholar who I think is brilliant, awesome, amazing. I disagree with him on a few things, but he has a really helpful uh, statement about this. He says, Paul's argument draws on an analogy to the effect that both men and women should not dishonor their respective heads. Paul intends to correct male behavior just as much as female behavior. Indeed, headship is something that binds men and women together under Christ. doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, you have a head and your head is Christ if you're a Christian. Amen? We're called to submit to our head. The second argument is not rooted in the nature of the Trinity. It's now rooted in the creation narrative before the fall. Look at what he says in verse 7. It says, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither is man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, before you melt down and have a complete freak out at the Apostle Paul, don't misunderstand what he's saying. He is not saying that women were made for man as in they're the object that God created so that we could have it. That, that is the opposite of everything that scripture would teach us about the relationship between men and women. He is not saying that only men are made in the image of God and women are not. He's not saying that. We know clearly from scripture that men and women are made in the image of God. So what is Paul trying to say here? Paul is pointing to creational dignity and creational differences. I love that Paul says, hey, don't forget the man was made first and then the woman. Now, that may bother you. You may not like that, but Paul's not being rude. He actually felt like the order of creation mattered and meant something. And I feel like if Paul thought it should mean something, we should probably think it should mean something as well. And here's what he's saying. It's fascinating and it's powerful. He's saying, hey, God made Adam, and then it was from Adam's rib that he then made the woman. Now, think about this. The fact that something so amazing, so beautiful, so glorious, a person that bears the image of God would come from a man is an honor and a glory to the man. It's unbelievable that that would happen. And Paul here, don't forget why he's saying this. Like, why is Paul telling Corinthian men that women are the glory of man? Why is Paul making this whole line of argument? Here's why. Because you had Roman men walking into the church and they were trying to show everybody, here's how important I am, head covering, head covering. Here's how, here's how significant, how powerful I am. And they're putting on a head covering. And Paul is saying, friends, you're forgetting. You're forgetting that your inherent dignity, value, and worth comes from the fact that you are made in the image of God and something so powerful and precious as a woman came from man. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying the poorest, the least noble, the least important man in this church is the glory of God himself. What you want, Roman Christians, 
what you want, you already have. You don't need to put on a head covering to signal your importance. You already, you're, you're made in the image of God. And ladies, what is he saying? What's this whole line about women as the glory of man? Again, he's not saying that you're not made in the image of God. You are. But here's a really helpful analogy from Andrew Wilson. Again, it's the whole idea of you being glorious and different and amazing and special, and you came from Adam's side. Andrew Wilson says this, I have an apple tree in my garden, which produces apples, from which we make apple crumble. The crumble is the glory of the apple. It reflects its goodness in every way and brings honor to it. And the apple is the glory of the tree. And none of the three are superior or inferior to the other two. Men and women bear God's image together and reflect God's glory on earth in different and complementary ways. Remember, the problem in Corinth was that men were trying to show their significance by putting on a head covering, and women were trying to show their independence and autonomy from their husbands by taking off their head covering, and Paul wants to correct both of those at the same time. He's actually fighting for men and women together, especially in the context of marriage, but men and women together, to look at the other and celebrate the difference, and honor one another, and encourage one another, and not fight for independence, but interdependence. And that's why after all of this, Paul says this verse in verse 11 that's shocking. He says, nevertheless in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, now he flips the argument, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Do you see this? He's saying, hey, ladies, you came from Adam's side. That's a glory to Adam. But also, men, don't forget, you only exist because of a woman. That a woman had birth and you came out. That's the only reason you exist. You need one another. That's his argument. Now, that doesn't shock us today in a culture that has equality written on every page out there. But in Roman culture, where men were seen as important and women were seen as less than, that's beautiful, isn't it? Hey, you're, you're, you're interdependent. You're co-equal with Christ. You need one another. That would have been mind-blowing, countercultural in the first century. And that all leads me to the third and final thing, which is prayer and prophecy. So hair and head coverings, gender dignity and differences, prayer and prophecy. Look at verse four one more time so that we don't lose the main theme here. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. What's the key issue here? Well, a lot of people are going to say the key issue in 1 Corinthians 11 is head coverings. Other people are going to say, no, the key issue in 1 Corinthians 11 is headship. And I think both are important. Both are in there. Both matter. But that's not the key issue. What's the key issue here? It's the fact that men and women are actually called to use their gifts in the corporate gathering together. Here you have men and women, which was breathtaking in the first century, praying and prophesying, using their gifts together. And Paul does not shut it down. Paul doesn't say less. Paul doesn't say, nope, only the men can do it. He says, do it all the more. Go for it. This is amazing. He wants men and women together to use their gifts like crazy in the church. With this one caveat, that when men pray and prophesy, they should do so distinctly as redeemed Christian men fully embracing their masculinity, praying and prophesying as a man. And when women do it, that they do it distinctly as a Christian woman, 
fully embracing their femininity and doing all that they're doing out of their femininity. It's beautiful. We're going to talk more about prayer and prophecy when we get to chapters 12 and 14, but suffice it to say that women were absolutely essential, vital, and significant to the life of the early church. Everything about culture in the the first century tells us that the way that the early church was exploding with women and they're using their gifts and they're leading in the services was unbelievable. And that's something that we're going to talk about more, but don't miss the whole point. It's all about prayer and prophecy. Now, there's one more challenging verse that we need to see, and then we can be done. Verse 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I love that. It makes perfect sense, right? You know, because of the angels. That's all, just because of the angels. You're like, oh, great, thanks, Paul. This chapter's already hard enough. What the heck does that mean? Because of the angels? How does that make any sense at all? I'm supposed to wear a symbol of authority on my head because of the angel? What? All right, there are two possible interpretations here. The first is it's literally meaning angelic beings, angels, right? And the ESV, this is how the ESV takes it. Uh, it. It means that as the church gathers on Sunday, there's angelic beings that are watching in on our worship of God himself. And we can actually bring honor or shame to God based on how they see us worship, Right? based on how we're doing this. Um, I think that's a viable translation. That's how most scholars take it. That's not what I think is being said here. There's a footnote in the ESV that also says messengers because this Greek word here can mean either angelic beings or literal human messengers. Now, here's what was happening in Corinth. Wealthy people at the time would not go to different places without first sending a messenger, not just to send and deliver a message, but to receive feedback and input on what was happening in various gatherings, whether it's pagan festivals or whatever. And so I think what was happening here is that some of the wealthier people in Corinth are sending human messengers into the church in Corinth to investigate what is this whole Jesus thing all about? What's this Christian gathering? What's happening there? And Paul is saying, hey, listen, when outsiders come in among you as messengers trying to deliver back to the people that sent them, here's what they're all about. And they see men fighting for superiority and women acting crazy and doing all these things, it's sending a, a wrong signal to those people about what the church of Jesus is all about. He's saying they need to have a symbol of authority on their head because of these messengers. Now, that word authority literally means rights. There was a law in Rome at the time because of this new progressive women's movement that had arisen that women who were raped or sexually assaulted could not have any defense in a court system if at the time of getting assaulted, they were not wearing a head covering and dressed properly. So Paul's not belittling them. He's saying, it's your right. Show your right to wear your head covering. It's, it's good for you. It's right and good in this culture at the time. And here's the point, friends. Here's the point that Paul actually cares about the reputation of the church within whatever cultural context that we find ourselves in. And we're actually not called to look at what our culture says is immodest or sexually broken and wrong and just pretend as if it's totally fine for us. And we're not to take the most progressive parts of our culture and adopt those to our lives. We are called to be in the city as the unique people of God who live and look more like the kingdom people that God, create, that God has redeemed and less like the people that we used to look like before Jesus saved us. So do we look more like a distorted broken version of our culture? Or do we look more like a community of salty brightness in a world lost in darkness? 
All right, so what does all this mean for us? We have to do some symbolic translation here, as Andrew Wilson calls it. Symbolic translation. That literally means that in different cultures, different words and actions and symbols mean different things, right? So in Bulgaria, this is fascinating, if you nod your head, it means no. And if you shake your head, it means yes. It's literally the polar opposite of how you and I would handle a yes or no question. So if you're in Bulgaria and you want to be clear and you want to fit into the culture and have your meaning come across, you have to shift what you do with your head to mean yes or to mean no. In Ghana, I was there a couple of years ago, um, two men walking down the street is a sign of friendship and love. Uh, I was there and I was literally walking down the street with another pastor holding his hand. And that's a sign like we're friends, We're, we're brothers, we're doing this together. In our culture today, two men walking down the street does not symbolize friendship. It symbolizes romantic affection. So do you see how you have to figure out what head coverings meant for them and then how we do the symbolic translation to apply it to our lives today? In our culture today, and let's just do it real quickly, in our culture today, men with long hair, they're not sending any signal about their sexuality or their gender. It doesn't matter. You choose your hair length and style based on stylistic preference alone. But are there ways that a man could signal something that's different from his gender? Yeah, there are ways. There are ways. Are there ways that a woman could dishonor her husband in our culture that doesn't include taking off a head covering? Absolutely. A lady that gets on an airplane, removes her wedding ring, is effectively taking off her head covering, and Paul would take issue with that. Do you see how we apply what Paul is saying in their world to our life today? Friends, here's the point. That if you're married, you're called to honor and respect your spouse. If you're a man, you're called to live fully in your masculinity. If you're a woman, you're called to live fully in your femininity. There are culturally acceptable things and things that even our culture would say, that's crossing a line. Paul cares about that. Celebrate our independence of one another. Take our cues from Christ and his kingdom, not the world around us. We live in a time that is at war on the issue of gender and sexuality. And the church is often made out to be the oppressor. And friends, the church has gotten it wrong more times than not. So let me say this. May Frontline Church be a place where everyone is welcomed. Everyone is welcomed, regardless of where you are and your struggle with gender and sexual temptations. I know for a fact that we've got men and women in our church that struggle with gender issues and anxiety. And man, I just want you to hear me say this, if that's you. I want you to hear me say this as one of your pastors. I'm glad you're here. God's love is available to you. He's not freaked out by you or embarrassed of you. He sent his son for you, just like the rest of us. And it's only in Jesus, it's only in Jesus that we are truly authentic people where we find our true selves being made by our maker. So let's all, let's all realize that we all have disordered desires. We're all sexually busted. We're all sexually confused in certain ways. And yet Jesus in his love and in his grace, he welcomes all of us who would receive him, deny themselves and confess him as Lord. Would you stand with me? All right. We remember that every Sunday we're being renewed in our minds and in our hearts 
to be the people of God who receive the love of God and have that love change the way that we live. Jesus entered human history, lived the life that we should have lived, and on the cross had his body broken, his blood shed, so that we could not just be forgiven, friends, but so that we could be remade in his image. That's what God is doing right now. He is conforming us and transforming us in our minds and in our hearts and our lives to look more like Jesus. And so friends, I want to invite you today in all of your struggle and all of your confusion to just ask Jesus and receive this as a meal of saying, would you continue to transform my heart, mind, and life around the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to come and receive the bread and receive the cup And we're going to do this in groups today, and then we'll send you in just a minute. But friends, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, let's just remember this is a a word written to the church. This is not Paul writing to the city of Corinth. He's writing to Christians in the city. So if you're here today and this is confusing to you, or you're like, I don't know what to do with this. Hey, I don't know that you really need to worry about that. I think the thing that you should be thinking about is what do I do with Jesus? What do I do with his claim to be God, to be alive, to have died in my place for my sins and risen again so that I could have new life. And I just want to say to you, man, you are welcome here. We love you. We are honored by your presence. We want you around. We want you in this community. You can ask any question. You will not offend us. We assume that you would not believe or behave the way that we do, and that's okay. We're glad that you're here. So wrestle, be here on Sundays. Don't come and take the meal because this is for followers of Jesus. But if you're a Christian, I want to invite you now. Let's come and let's receive the body and the blood of Jesus broken and shed for us.